0: Thank you for joining the Limitless Energy podcast today. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome today our own Emily Litt, R&D scientist in the R&D lab at Dragonfly Energy. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here today.
0: It's, it's so nice to have you on because um, I think that when I think of when you first came, when you first interviewed, we were a, a much smaller company. Not that long ago. I mean, we're talking a couple of years, is it?
1: Yeah, almost three years yeah.
0: Three years now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, co- during COVID, was that it was, COVID? so?
1: It's it's past two and a half, not quite three, almost there. Okay. <laughs> <So> All right. <laughs> Beginning of the year of twenty twenty one. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I mean, do, even during your interview, I remember when you first came in, um, and you were you were very confident. I felt you were uh, non traditional. Let's talk about your background because, mm-hmm. uh, so you, you're. In material science, correct?
1: Yeah. So I studied material science and engineering at the University of Nevada Reno, but I was a back-to-schooler. So mm-hmm. I wasn't, uh, yeah, the typical intern, I guess, applying at Dragonfly because uh, I had already had a career for over a decade that I decided to abandon. Right.
0: I should have mentioned that you were in. You were applying for, as for an internship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I love back-to-schoolers. I think that's a very positive thing. Just in general, uh, folks that uh, have had some experience and then realized what they want to do went back to school to do it. Mm-hmm. And so tell me about that experience. Why, when did you decide to go back to school?
1: Yeah, so uh, I had been working in marketing uh, and advertising uh there was obviously some sales aspects to that. And I just really wasn't motivated or excited to be doing that. There was really no passion for me there. So I thought to myself, what would excite me and I've always had an interest in making the world a better place. And especially environmentally. So I try to do a lot of things in my personal life to ensure that I'm helping the planet. And I wanted to have a career that allowed me to do that too. So I went back to school to study materials, uh, specifically material science engineering because everything begins (laughs) with materials. So I wanted to be at the ground level. so I studied material science engineering. I knew that I wanted to get into the lithium-ion battery space. So there, at the time, there was only really Panasonic, Tesla, and Dragonfly that I knew of that was hiring. Uh, obviously, I was most excited to work in R and D. And so when a position became available uh, at Dragonfly Energy, it was a no-brainer, and you guys had such a great reputation too at the university because you had been doing work, um, you know, at the university through our shared facilities using, you know, the scanning electron microscope, which obviously as a material scientist, I was really excited about.
0: Yeah, well, your passion definitely came through. I remember that actually about that interview, so it's kind of like the second interview. Right for yeah, I have interviewed you once before. Um, but anyway, uh, we we do take great pride in the fact that we recruit from the university. You're a proud alumna from mm-hmm. the University of Nevada Reno, um, and you have grown, I would say, quickly in the company. You're you're a you're a lead uh, in the R&D team, and over the last year year and a half, the R&D team has grown pretty significantly, right?
1: Yes. So I would say just to clean slate it, essentially it was myself and one other intern plus our now director of R&D that was uh, working for a few months in the lab when I was just starting out. And now we have almost 30 people working in the lab. So yes, <laughs> we have grown quite a bit.
0: So there's head count, there's mm-hmm. people, and there's equipment yes and that's something i'm pretty excited about so so i want to talk with you a little bit about two of i think the most important collaborations we have external uh to the company i'm talking about tescan and Bruker. Mm -hmm. so let's talk about those two companies in general tescan makes basically scanning electron microscopes but also uh, instruments that are adjacent to or connected to the Scan Electron Microscope. They're based in Brno, uh, Czech Republic, mm-hmm. and you've been there quite a bit, right?
1: Yeah, I was fortunate enough to go quite a bit last year, actually. I was almost once a month for, for the whole year, so uh, I feel very fortunate, and it's a beautiful town. So let's
0: talk about the... Okay, yes, the town is beautiful. I'm sorry. Let's <laughs> talk, I was, uh, my mind is on the technical stuff. Let's talk about those instruments. So yeah. um, we... We take a scanning electron micrograph of, let's say, a cross-section of a lithium-ion battery, mm-hmm. and we can see things to very, very fine detail, not just imaging it, but also using chemical analysis, mm-hmm. uh, mass spectrometry, Raman, mm-hmm. other other types of things where we can see exactly uh, the chemistry of what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why that's important in the context of how lithium ion batteries work and and how they age?
1: Yeah, so I think I'd want to take just a slight step back because I think about the material science work that we do on the batteries in three categories. So the first being, a QC of raw or pristine material where we might subject these materials to the processes that you're talking about just to essentially get baselines of the material for the future work that we'll do. The next would be post-mortem analysis. So we've cycled the cell and now we're going to do this in-depth failure analysis, if you will, of the cell. And so what's So important about doing uh, this comparative analysis in, say, a scanning electron microscope like the one that we've used at TESCAN is we can actually visualize and see what's happened to a battery. So uh, when a battery is failing or losing capacity, oftentimes that's due to something like damage to the particles that are inside of the battery. And we can actually visualize that through the scanning electron microscope. And then couple that with say, energy dispersive spectroscopy, right? So that's just elemental analysis. And we can now look and say, okay, we have these damaged areas. Is there maybe a buildup of a certain element uh, that corresponds more to a damaged particle than one that's pristine? And then we can layer, And another element, and say, do uh, Toff Sims. where we can uh, get, um, you know, complexes and map these uh, species and not just do pure elemental mapping. So now we can say, okay, these damaged particles or these uh, non-damaged particles have uh, certain signatures, if you will. Um, and that will really allow us to maybe do some reverse engineering or allow us to pivot uh, in the lab so we can maybe um, enhance certain Compositions that uh, are naturally degrading in the battery during cycle to prevent this particle degradation. And then the last piece of the puzzle, if you will, is uh, in operando analysis. So, uh, this is when we can actually cycle the battery and then look and see what's happening live, right, to the battery as it's cycling. Uh, so, this is some of the work that is, I think, very important to understanding failure diagnostics of the lithium ion batteries, uh, but also really inform uh, the work that we're doing in the lab through you know, choosing certain electrolytes or um, maybe compositions of certain anodes or cathodes that we're, we're using.
0: So when it comes to cell manufacturing, we as a cell manufacturer along with basically anyone else who's who's trying to do this is focused on longevity of a lithium ion battery because mm-hmm. ultimately the the cost of the storage term is determined by how long the battery lasts in terms of how many cycles it can mm-hmm. go through charge and discharge cycles and as a as a battery cycles it loses capacity over time it mm-hmm. ages and we are looking for mechanisms that cause the loss of that capacity and one of the most important mechanisms is the formation of the interface the solid Mm -hmm. electrolyte interface so how are we using this this equipment to understand First of all, how does that solid electrolyte interface form and Mm -hmm. how do you minimize its continued formation over time?
1: Yeah, so I think implementing these instruments that we're talking about like a scanning electron microscope or uh, a TEM or transmission electron microscope uh, Mm -hmm. where we can do this really um, high resolution imaging and uh, high resolution maybe lithium mapping through Mm -hmm. uh, maybe Toffsons or NMR, we can really ID SEI layers. Uh, So we can say this SEI is made of this, this one is made of something different. And then we can tie that to the cell cycle performance. So we can say, that this composition yields a successful battery that had a long cycle life, and this composition doesn't, uh, which is very helpful and informative to us. Um, but one of the things that we're learning a lot in the lab right now is that it's not just about what you put in the battery from a chemistry perspective uh, that is going to affect the SEI layer in the long run. It's also um, different electrochemical tunings that you might subject it to. So uh, there's a lot of factors that we can, uh, or knobs, I should say, that we can turn, levers that so we can move So by
0: electrochemical tunings, you're talking about the formation process. Yes, so yes. So this is if you make a cell, you've got an anode and a cathode, you you have an electrolyte and the first thing you do after you make it is you charge it for the very first time. Yes. Let's talk about that. What what does that entail?
1: Yeah, so essentially uh, when we're making a battery, uh, you are always going to assemble your battery. Uh, You are going to let that battery soak for some given amount of time to really ensure that the battery is absorbing all the electrolyte that it has in its system. And then you are going to uh, apply a current to the battery, to charge the battery. And during this step, the electrolyte is going to decompose onto the surface of the graphite particles. And this is going to passivate the graphite particles, uh, much like rust would passivate uh, maybe metal out in atmosphere, right? So it's going to protect these graphite particles um, from a lot of different things that could be happening inside the battery but i think the best way to think about the sei layer is just as a really amazing filter so it allows lithium ion batteries to go or sorry lithium ions to go into uh, the graphite particles and then uh, allows them to go out and nothing else if it's a healthy sei layer right and we can tune this sei layer and encourage its health if if you will and by uh just changing the current density that we use to charge its battery on on its uh, first charge. Um, and maybe if we do that more than one time, or maybe if we do that at different temperatures, that's all going to yield a different SEI layer that is essentially going to affect the cell's performance over thousands of cycles.
0: So everybody that makes cells has some sort of formation... Protocol that mm-hmm. they use. And I would imagine that they differ pretty dramatically from manufacturer to manufacturer.
1: Yes. So, uh, most manufacturers, I, I think of this as like the Coca Cola recipe, right? Mm-hmm. So, every manufacturer is going to have their own trade secret on how they are for, uh, forming their batteries or their SEI layers. Because, uh, you know, every battery that's on the market has gone through this process, right? Before we even see it as consumers. Uh, but I think. I think on average most companies are going to do you know some sort of short soaking time like we were talking about um, they're most likely going to apply current oftentimes at temperature and they do that really to expedite the process so uh, you can imagine in industry they want to do these things quickly and they want to do them in a way that's cost effective so the um, less amount of energy they have to put into the process the better uh, and the less amount of time better as well so uh, doing things at a reasonable temperature can help expedite the process Uh, so they will do this you know multi-cycle formation and then probably some sort of aging process where the battery will undergo some sort of ambient aging, which might involve additional cycling or honestly just sitting on a shelf until it's ready to be shipped out.
0: You talked about uh, in situ or operando studies, and one of the most interesting ones that I've seen is what Bruker has developed with their NMR, their nuclear magnetic resonance. Mm -hmm. And in this particular instrument, you can charge and discharge a battery and watch the lithium ion, go mm-hmm. back and forth between the the anode and the cathode. Mm-hmm. Why is that important?
1: So we can actually watch what's happening to this lithium. And it allows us to do um, really great failure diagnostics of the battery. So for example, um, we might apply a current to the battery, uh, move the lithium ion from the cathode to the anode, and then Maybe when we are charging through our analysis of our electrochemical data, we see that we've moved all those lithium ions over, but for some reason, when we discharge the battery, they didn't come back. Uh, so using NMR, we can see what happened to those lithium ions, uh, and it can help us, again, pivot in the lab to um, maybe adjust something in our system that will correct that behavior. So you
0: can see if they, formed SEI, if they got stuck in the graphite, mm-hmm. if they became lithium metal.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, it, the, the industry right now, in terms of the importance of lithium-ion batteries and storage, and the technology that's being developed to understand those processes better, it's, I mean, it's, it's an exciting time to be in this industry.
1: Yes, I completely agree because we, well, when they first made the battery, right, like the first lithium ion battery, they didn't know they needed an SEI layer. And they've now realized that the SEI layer governs the success of batteries. You know, there's talks of no need for SEI layer, but that's a whole other podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> for us. Uh, but we know how important the SEI layer is. And you can almost attribute, Almost all capacity fade or or battery failure to some sort of flaw in the SEI layer. So to be able to be at the you know cutting edge of these technologies that allow us to actually visualize, one see we can see the SEI layer now, which is incredible. Um, Type it through elemental analysis and uh, do this compositional mapping of its morphology um, and what it's you know made out of, and then actually watch how it's being made through these in operando methods like uh, the NMR method that you uh, referenced is incredible for for someone who's studying batteries.
0: Isn't it interesting that when you first came in and you were looking for a way to do something for the planet Mm -hmm. and related to materials or, or fundamental chemistry that this particular nanoscale structure that you're understanding and, and and building and seeing how it evolves determines the levelized cost of a battery it determines how cheap you can have solar energy mm-hmm. and can you incorporate solar and batteries to compete against the cost of burning fossil fuels right mm-hmm. um it's for me i think it's 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 so fascinating that's it, that it's evolved I mean, my background is in science and engineering, so I just find it so awesome that it's evolved to understanding such a fundamental problem that relates to such a macroeconomic issue as to the cost of how we make electricity, which Mm -hmm. ultimately is what is going to determine our carbon footprint for the next century.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it makes it really easy to, I think... uh be passionate about what we're doing, knowing that that is the big picture goal. Uh, and it's, it's not lost on us, even though sometimes we we are always thinking about stuff on this micro or, or nano scale. Uh, but yes, at the end of the day, I care about that micro or nano, nano scale because of the larger impact that it has uh, on on the world, hopefully.
0: Is this what you thought you'd be doing when you went back to school?
1: It's way cooler. it's it's much better i my favorite part uh of the material science program at the university was materials characterization and i was fortunate enough to uh, be able to take a global class on materials characterization but then get to uh, focus in on instruments like scanning electron microscopy or xrd um or DSC or whatever it may be and that was always my favorite part uh, and I will never forget it I was probably gosh maybe six months into my internship and you guys told me that we were going to buy all these you know state-of-the-art characterization uh, pieces of equipment and I think at the time we maybe had a micrometer <laughs> in the lab <laughs> <laughs> and we had a couple rulers yeah, yeah and some uh yeah some of uh, potential some stuff duct tape. yeah some duct tape <laughs> exactly we had a a rotary cutter yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, uh but uh And so when you told me that, I was like, okay, yeah. You know, there's like three people in this building. We're essentially in a garage. Someday we'll get there. And then that, by the end of the year, I think you guys were traveling overseas to go meet with uh, the TESCAN people and demo these instruments. And we placed the order at the beginning of the next year. And I never thought that I would be able to, every day, be able to use these instruments that excited me, but to use all of them. For one, and then the top of the line, state of the art um, versions of these instruments, and then study something as dynamic as batteries has been a dream,
0: and you get to travel too,
1: and I to get to travel. Well, yeah,
0: I do have to. I ha- I have to give uh, some credit to both TESCAN and Bruker. They are. Mm-hmm. They have over the months let us use the equipment over in Europe. You know, while we're setting up our lab here, and and that's been. Uh, it's been critical to our ability to continue doing the work we're doing, but how much fun is it to go to Europe?
1: Yeah, it's a black, well, I will say flying to Europe is maybe not the most fun. (laughs) It's a long flight, but it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and the people have been great. And being in Europe is a lot of fun, but I think what's almost more exciting is to go to these facilities and learn from these experts, right, who all they do all day long is work on these instruments and they know these instruments better than anybody else. But they don't know our materials, right? So being able to go over there and really have this meeting of minds, if you will, where they can show us the best way to analyze our materials, has been really exciting and has provided us, I think, with uh, you know invaluable training opportunities that we wouldn't have gotten if maybe we had just installed the instruments right away.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's 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 a pleasure to go over there and interact with those folks. They're mm-hmm. so nice. They're so knowledgeable. Um, and I personally, I've, I've been to Brno and, mm-hmm. and I have enjoyed the, uh, that city and, you know, and Prague and Vienna while, yeah. while we were there, you know, but um, no, they're, they're so nice. And it's so cool to see uh, at the test scan facility, like the very first scanning mm-hmm. electron microscope that they've that was built, I, I don't know how many decades ago, mm-hmm. but it's just like right there in the open. And it's just like, oh, that's, like somebody built that and, and yeah. it worked and it grew this company.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's been really impressive to see the, the quality of uh, images that we can get from there and to watch them. Actually, uh, because when we started our partnership with them, they had not launched their um, uh, STEM system mm. yet, so, uh, that has been fun to watch them grow That's and the, to
0: the uh, transmission electron microscope,
1: mm-hmm. and they uh, have really, I think, kind of begun to develop their understanding too of the battery space and the battery industry, and they are taking a lot of interest in uh, things that we need in order to do battery analysis. Right, so a lot of these instruments are. Um, Widely used in, uh, you know, biology or some the health-related fields, uh, and they have different needs than we have in the battery industry and the battery industry is so new in this space that it's been fun to work with these companies and have them listen to us when we're saying, we need inert transfer, right? We need cryo. Uh, We need to have all these things in order for, uh, we can't work under nitrogen or something like that, right? So uh, we need glove boxes at your facility. So it's been fun to to partner with them and have them listen to us and then implement these uh, aspects to their technology that work really well for battery research
0: well you are a trailblazer so <laughs> thank you for what you do and thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: yeah so thank you so much for having me it was uh, wonderful to be here and hopefully I can come again
0: well you I'm, I'm sure you will and you are a valued member of the R&D team and the and the company and I'm so happy to have you aboard so Emily Litt. thank you Thank you for listening to the Limitless Energy podcast. Be sure to subscribe on any of your favorite listening platforms.